Just before we get started, the Second Act Podcast would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on Treaty 7 land inhabited by the Blackfoot Nations. This includes the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai. We would also like to acknowledge the Sutsina and Stony Nakoda First Nations, as well as the Métis Nations and all people who make their home on Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta. But now that we've paid respects to people that were here before us, let's start the pod. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Second Act Podcast. This podcast is kind of a, a dream for us. Yeah, a dream for us, for sure. Kelly Rudy is one of those guests that when you're fleshing out an idea like the Second Act podcast and you have an idea of a couple of people who might want to come on, he was right at the top of the list. I mean, I've, I've followed this guy's career right from playing hockey through broadcasting hockey on uh, Hockey in Canada through CBC and, and Sportsnet for the last 24 years. And, and then you start to see some of the other things that he's doing outside of all of that. And you realize he's a perfect fit, and uh, and it was so cool when Kelly got back and said, "Yeah, I think I think I got time. Let's uh, let's set it up." Well, and this is usually the point in the intro where I would go and I would say like what my favorite part was and why. But I just listened to Kelly Rudy. Like I was more in shock. I wasn't really thinking, so I'm just gonna say the whole thing was my favorite part. It was such a it was a good, well structured pod. It was a lot of fun to listen to. Yeah, it was. It was just a great pod, and the, and the best part about somebody like Kelly, who's got so much going on, is he never runs out of interesting stuff to talk about. Uh, we talked about his, his playing career and how that all came about, his early life before that. We talked about the ups and the downs of playing in the NHL, the the broadcasting, and then we really got into something that kind of is, I, I mentioned it in the podcast, he lights up more when he talks about his daughter Caitlin's uh, mental health clothing line, mental health awareness clothing line. Than he did about anything else and, and we spent some time talking about more good days and and what that means to him his wife his family and and all that so uh just really a, a fun pod um episode 75 couldn't have asked for a better guest for a milestone like that so let's turn it over to kelly rudy hi gord how are you i'm doing really well and really appreciate you uh taking some time with us today kelly your story is uh got all the twists and turns from uh, from a, a life in hockey to to doing all the different things that you've been doing after. And I think there's a lot of things in your life that people can relate to, even if they don't have um, 271 wins in the NHL. <laughs> yeah, I think we can all relate to a whole bunch of different things. And I think uh, maybe this pandemic has sort of taught us a lot about that, but how similar we are. And it's been kind of cool. Uh, not to go through the pandemic, I don't think anybody enjoyed that, but just how a lot of us have connected with uh, with others. You know, I'm really looking forward to this conversation about, you know, how we've all maybe gone through a career change or we're looking forward to one or, um, and, you know, it, it applies to basically all of us. Yeah, and that's, that's the whole idea for this came um, through uh, one of the first episodes we did was with Robin Regeer, and, and I've known Robin over the years, and I, you know, all the different things that he's done. And I, and I started talking to people and you realize that you don't have to have a high profile first act to have a really interesting or sometimes even mm -hmm. interesting second act. So when we come across somebody who's who's got a bit of an idea of what they want to do after this part's done, uh, the decisions that go into changing a, a, a pathway or even just the impetus for the change. Um, I think there's a lot of value in sharing that because there's people out there in the world that are thinking of making those same changes. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And uh, maybe even it's forced on you. Who knows, right? You know, like in my old job, I always knew there was a, 
uh, a time limit, right? It was there was a due date, and it was uh, at some point. I didn't know when it was going to happen, but I knew that uh, at some point I'm going to have to make a life decision and choose uh, to go into a different field. So your first job, I guess, is uh, is as a as a hockey player. I mean, you played in Medicine Hat and. Mm-hmm. And you got drafted by the Islanders in the second round, I believe. Um, yeah. You're following the the shoes of a of an Islander legend, and and coming into a team that was, you know, a juggernaut, obviously. And and you hung around in in the island for about five or six years. Yeah. And then you you managed to go to New York, or pardon me, to uh, Los Angeles at a time there was a couple of uh, of famous hockey legends rolling around the dressing room and during your time there as well. And, and then you, you know, you did all those things and then you kind of, at the end of all that, you were in a situation where you're able to intern almost as a broadcaster when, when you weren't in the playoffs or, or if yeah. you didn't make the playoffs. Um, at what point through all that, when you're doing all the fun things, does it actually click that, okay, I can't do this forever because I think, part of being a professional athlete is that undying belief that you're you're always going to be able to do it at a certain level right okay so my journey sort of starts even before what most people uh, or most hockey fans would know uh my playing days but growing up in edmonton gord my goal in life was to be a park warden in uh Banff or jasper yoho kootenai one of those parks and and the reason why is because uh, we didn't have a lot of extra money around, and uh, my mom and dad gave my brother and I an absolute gift as kids, and that gift was we'd go camping to the Rocky Mountains. And so I fell in love with the mountains early on in my life, and uh, I was always uh, kind of curious about what the life of a, a park warden would be like. And so um, even to this day, if you were to go down into my office in my house, uh, half the bookshelves uh, are just covered with uh, mountain books. So whether it's about trails or early explorers or just photos, uh, those sorts of things. So it's still a big part of my life and I still go to the mountains. So it's kind of like this game of hockey kind of gotten the way of my what my life should have been, really. Um, I know I kind of joke about it and so on, but that was not hockey seemed so far away that I could never attain that uh, or being a professional athlete. And so um, I kind of had to learn along the way how to be a a pro hockey player because, like I said, it wasn't my number one love. My love was to to maybe go to university and become a park warden. And uh, and then all of a sudden I started to get better and better at hockey. And finally, as you mentioned, I went to Medicine Hat and all of a sudden – it really started to take off a little bit there. Although I wasn't, even though I was drafted in the second round, I I think I kind of flew under the radar a little bit. And it wasn't until I ended up leaving Medicine Hat and playing two full years in the minors in Indianapolis. That's kind of when I had an idea that I might be able to make a few bucks in, in hockey. So when you're drafted by a team like, like the Islanders that were so stacked at that point, was that... Um, was that a like? Were you excited about the opportunity, or was it more of a whole? Oh, this is going to be a tough nut to crack. Both, and I think the reality of it was, Gord, when I went to training camp in 1980, um, and man, that was some journey because I think I'd only been on 
two or three flights ever in my life before that. And then to fly all the way from uh, Edmonton to uh, New York City, LaGuardia Airport and experience that whole uh, monster and uh, the whole experience of uh, catching a shuttle and going to uh, the hotel on Long Island and then meeting the guys the next day and meeting everybody and seeing the roster for the Islanders, I think was the first kind of glimpse into my life and how hard it was going to be to make the Islanders. Because if I'm, I don't think I'm going to miss anybody, but I may. Um, when I went to the Islanders, they had, of course, Billy Smith. They had uh, Chico Resch. They had Richard Brodeur. They had Jim Park. They had Roly Melanson. Um, I think that's all. So I'm, I'm at least number six or could have been number seven on the depth chart. <clears throat> so when you're drafted in the second round and you look way up above and there's all these people in front of you, <clears throat> my first reaction was how in the world am I ever going to uh, make my way to the top to be one of those two guys? And uh, as I mentioned, uh, those two years in the minors were instrumental uh, for my growth. I did go back to Medicine Hat for one more year, um, but I kind of think to a certain degree I was ready for another challenge. Uh, but of course, I had to go back to junior. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a, if not a who's who, it's really close to like <laughs> early, late 70s, early 80s goaltenders. Right. That's a, um, that's quite a, a murderer's row to, to have to <laughs> try right? and picture you above. You know what's even uh, funnier now? Uh, when I look back on that or I talk about it, I'm like, holy cow, that's like, you know, taking away a 19-year-old's dreams right there. Right? You're looking up the ladder and you're nowhere near the top. And, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of time to make it. So you've got you've to put in some pretty good work to get recognized. Well, and it's considering there's only two spots on a team. It's yeah. not like a defenseman or anything like that. It's really intimidating but obviously um you know as as we know now you stuck it out and, and you were able to you know pull some some you know memorable seasons together i was a an islanders fan i never be, i'm an oilers fan now i didn't become an okay. oilers fan until after they traded uh wayne gretzky um at the time i was kind of contrarian and i was an islanders fan and um one memory that i have that you were central in is the longest game ever i remember sitting and watching and it going to overtime and it was time for bed and I had to go into bed. I, I was nine or 10 at the time. Sure. And, uh, and I woke up and my dad was a huge hockey fan. So I woke up in the morning and who won the game? And he said, oh, I don't know. I went to bed and I thought he was pulling my leg because <laughs> he would stay up and watch the end of the game. There's no way right. he went to bed. And he said he went to bed after I believe the third overtime. So he watched entirely a second game and then he went to right. bed eight or 10 minutes in. Um, Pat LaFontaine scored that goal and I remember sure. watching it over and over again but in the days before highlights like we you know it was on you had to watch it at the 5 30 news and then the six o'clock news and then wait until the 11 yeah. o'clock news and it was um, I remember seeing you jumping up and down at the other end probably <laughs> uh, just dying for something to eat and getting out of those stocking no soaking kidding, wet pads right? <laughs> yeah what a memory uh, my when, when you bring up the length of that game and, uh, you know, how odd it was and people maybe went to bed or whatever. I had a lot of stories when my wife and I came home for the summer. I had a lot of people that when they would talk about the game, they would say, well, uh, we went out to dinner with friends and came home and the game was still on. We thought it was a replay. 
Uh, and because if you remember back in 87, um, depending, I guess, on what network you're watching, they didn't have the so-called little bug in the corner of the picture to tell you what time or the score or the time left in the period, right? So yeah. you'd have to go long stretches without knowing the time of game or the score. Unlike today's broadcast where you're you're made aware of everything during the, sh the show itself. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are quite surprised that uh, the game ended at uh, Eastern time, uh, four minutes to two in the morning, which was crazy. Gosh, that's uh, that seems like a long time from start time. Yeah. So you uh, you played in L.A. until 88, 89 ish. Yeah. And then and then you ended up out in Los Angeles and you actually ended up on uh, with your greatest opportunity at success there when you guys went to the Stanley Cup finals. Um, what was that like with playing with with, you know, Wayne Gretzky and, and being the kind of the toast of the uh, L.A. town? You're a small town or I guess, a you know, a Canadian yeah. kid from Edmonton like that yeah. had to be a whole surreal experience. That really was. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought I kind of knew what so-called hockey celebrity was because playing on the Islanders uh, at the time we had uh, Dennis Potvin, Clark Gillies, Brian Trache, Mike Bossy, Billy Smith, and the list goes on and on. And uh, as we had mentioned before, they'd won four consecutive Stanley Cups. And being in New York, there's tons of media um, everywhere we went. Uh, there's cameras following those guys around. And so I kind of thought I had an idea what that so-called celebrity hockey life was like. Not that I was experiencing it, but through my teammates. And then in the 87 Canada Cup, when I played for Canada, and to be around Wayne for a month and a half or whatever that experience was, and to see that sort of level of celebrity, and then it just grew and grew when we were in L.A. I just I Sometimes I would just literally have to stop and just sort of look around and drink it all in. And uh, it wasn't sort of my experience. It was what Wayne was going through. And to to think like, my gosh, I, I don't know what that would ever feel like. I don't think I'd ever like it. Uh, as an example, um, in the first ever NHL lockout in 94, uh, Wayne took a whole bunch of us overseas. I think it was called Wayne Gretzky and Friends. And we played uh, seven or eight cities over in Europe. It was really cool. And uh, but the very first city we went to was, uh, <clears throat> um, oh gosh, uh, not Tampere, Finland. It was uh, uh, in Finland, anyways. I can't I'm drawing a blank right now. And uh, we're in kind of like the town square, and uh, it's a circular hotel, and it was honestly like the Beatles. The the crowd. They were maybe 10 or 20 deep around the entire hotel waiting to get a glimpse of Wayne, which was just phenomenal. None of us had ever experienced it. And that was, you know, a team with Wayne and uh, Steve Eisman, Doug Gilmore played a few games, Mark Messier, Paul Coffey. It was just crazy. And to see that uh, experience was just shocking, really. Yeah, well, I mean, that's at that point in your career, you've seen, like you mentioned, you've seen some yeah. things. Like, it's not like you're fresh off the farm here. Mm -hmm. And then to to have that experience. Um, and, and I guess in 94, you'd been playing with Wayne for a little while. So at any yep. of that, was that kind of like you knew this was coming when Wayne's around? Or was it Well, still... I think the reason I bring that experiences up, experience up was because it was uh, uh, in Europe. So I had experienced all those other things in North America. 
so and I didn't know his popularity was worldwide. Um, I had no idea about that. I, I kind of knew, I mean, you know, we went to the Scandinavian countries, so hockey's popular there, but nonetheless, I had no idea that uh, he uh, was that recognizable and, and that so many people wanted to see him. Now, when you go back to our earlier experiences in LA, it was cool because uh, at that time, hockey was gaining so much popularity because of Wayne uh, moving to LA and playing for the Kings and that uh, we were around all those celebrities all the time. And it was interesting because uh, it seemed every single time Wayne would break a new record, we'd be invited to a <clears throat> after game party at some Beverly Hills restaurant or something. And then you'd run into these, all the A-lister uh, movie stars <clears throat> and that was weird to think, as you mentioned, a kid growing up in Edmonton and now we're in there uh, in these restaurants and, and talking to people that you've only watched on the big screen. So very weird. Yeah, I can't imagine the the jarring nature of, of some of those encounters. So yeah. much like everything, though, um, all this comes to an end. You did you did sign in San Jose and play for, for a little yeah. while there. Yeah. Um, but as we talked about in the meantime, you, you'd kind of decided that you might want to try a hand at broadcasting. And I think a lot of people, that's where they know you now. It's been 20, mm -hmm. 24 or five years. Yeah. Um, you did, did, was that just something that you thought, you know what, uh, I, I still got a hairline, strong jawline. I'm going to go try <laughs> this on TV or how did it, how did that come about? Well, it wasn't based on appearances. I can tell you that <laughs> it was based on my early days in New York. And, uh, I know most people wouldn't think of it now, but uh, I, back then I was really quite shy. And uh, But being on a team that uh, had won four consecutive cups, were interviewed often, and being a goalie, uh, you're the person of record after a game, and so you're interviewed a ton. And, and so I really started to enjoy it, and I think I came out of my shell because of that. But what I, what I really tried to do to sort of separate myself, I hope that doesn't sound like I'm coming across as a, a big time in people, but I I really, not only did I watch tons of hockey, but I watched the, the intermissions. And if you remember back then, well, you might not because you're too young, but the intermission interviews weren't what you get today's interview where they're only about 30 seconds while the player's coming off the ice. These were extended interviews. So depending on what uh, network or what city you're in, the intermission interview might be as many as five to seven minutes long. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were like really sit-down interviews. And uh, so very cool. And so you get a chance to sort of show people who you are and your interests. And and so I really enjoyed those. And not only did I enjoy watching them, but I enjoyed uh, the players getting interviewed. I in, enjoyed the interviewers. Um, and and so I tried to, when it, when it was my chance to have to be interviewed, I tried to give answers that I thought were maybe a little bit more thoughtful and not just the regular type uh, answer without throwing anybody under the bus. I, I wanted to make sure that I was thoughtful enough, but that uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, burying any of my teammates or or any of that stuff. And so I think because of that, I started to get recognized uh, from the different networks and so on. But it wasn't until 19, I'm going to say ballpark around 94-ish, 95, that the Kings, we were on a road trip to play the Minnesota North Stars. Um, and I don't know if you know this station. It's a really popular station down in L.A., KTLA. And they were covering, they had a certain amount of games that they would cover locally. 
And uh, so they were in Minnesota to do this uh, game. And their legendary sports reporter was a guy by the name of Stu Nahan. Stu was a Canadian from Montreal, by, I believe, but he is just an absolute uh, sports commentating superstar down in uh, L.A. And he was the interviewer. And he and I had gotten along really well for a number of years. And so this interview went extremely well. Like I said, it was five to seven minutes. And much to my surprise, I didn't know this, but it was being watched back home by John Shannon, who at the time was the executive producer of Hockey Night, and by Ron McLean as well. And uh, it, within the next few days, they must have been chatting and said, you know, if there's ever a chance, maybe we'll ask Kelly to come on our show. And, uh, uh, you know, in 1995, we missed the playoffs by one point. We were, our last game was in Chicago. We flew home the next day and I walk in the door and my wife says to me, John Shannon has called and he'd like you to call him back. And I had known John already for about six years. And so I knew what he did and, and all, and I didn't know the opportunity that he was going to present to me. But uh, so I call him back and he tells me about this new uh, atrium show they're going to have in the CBC building during the playoffs. And it's going to be Ron McLean and Don Cherry, of course. And then they're going to alternate nights. And it's going to be Ron with somebody else, a guest uh, uh, analyst. And then just keep rotating throughout the first uh, round or two. I can't remember anymore. Maybe the first round. And uh, and he offered me the position. But he did say, I want to be up front. You are my second choice. And uh, I was a little bit disappointed. I thought, okay. But uh, the first choice, of course, was Wayne Gretzky, and he declined. And so because of that, I accepted. And then I went, uh, and I think, yeah, the first round we did. The next year, we missed the playoffs, and I think I did two rounds. So that was quite a commitment. That was after my season ended in L.A. I went to uh, Toronto for a month. And so, yeah. And so, you know, uh, I made a big commitment. And uh, so it worked out. And then my last few years in uh, San Jose, I did it to – a uh, month or two weeks again, I can't remember. One year we didn't make plus, one year we did, but we lost in the first round, so I went for two weeks. But anyways, that was the start of my broadcasting career, and I really enjoyed it. And luckily for me, when I retired fully in 1998 from the National Hockey League, uh, John Shannon was still the executive producer of Hockey Night. He offered me a position, and uh, so away we went. And, you know, it's a big learning curve, and although, you know, there's a similarity in that it, both jobs are based around hockey. One, the broadcasting has nothing to do with hockey itself, really. Other, like the job itself, it's just, we're talking about hockey, but the the performance and doing it has nothing to do with hockey. Well, and even within that, how much broadcasting hockey has changed since 1998? I mean, with the advent of all the different sports <laughs> channels. And the hot stove kind of nature of a year round, how how there's really no off season for it. There's slower times, and then you know you're at any given time. Like I mean, you're there. You could be on a panel with two ex other other ex players. You could yep. be with professional uh, professional broadcasters. You could be with women who used to play yep. the game. You know, it's just. You, you might have got it figured out and by 2001 thought you were coasting and then the internet and all the different streamings yeah. and different things would have made it completely like it's a learning curve almost every other year, I would think. You're right. And so when I, you know, now that you bring that up, I'm just thinking to uh, my experiences, my early experiences, like I didn't even know the 
broadcasting language. You know, some of the, like John Shannon, uh, when I was first on the desk with Ron, uh, and uh, we hear everything in our ears, right? And uh, John would be talking to us, and then he would say something to Ron McLean, this is a DO only. I had no idea. I'd just sit silently. I had no idea that that meant uh, voiceover only. And so there were all these things being said, and I didn't want to come across as stupid, so I wouldn't ask, which I should have in hindsight. Uh, and then, you know, things like, uh, as you mentioned, all these different personalities. When I first joined uh, for the playoffs, I was only doing it with Ron McLean. Um, when I was working out West as a full-time analyst, I was doing it just with uh, the host, whether it's Steve Armitage or Scott Russell or uh, later on Scott Oak, L.A. Friedman, all these guys. But it was just the two of us. And then when I was invited to, and by the way, I was doing telestrating right on the on the set, oh, yeah. which was very cool. I really loved that. Um, and uh, and then when I believe I can't remember what year when I was invited to go to Toronto full time every Saturday, and that was working with uh, Mike Milbury and Ron. And then we added PJ Stock. And then uh, further changes when uh, Roger Sportsnet has taken over. So. You have to adapt to all the different uh, scenarios, and uh, and it actually that part of it's been really fun. I think maybe had I just been you know with a host and just myself, the two of us, it, it may have become a little bit stale. But because we're always trying to change and adapt, and uh, it, it's been really good for for me, anyways. And I have to ask about somebody who's been through all of it. When they they really did try to make some changes, like I'm thinking when George Strombolophilus became involved and and they did all that as a as a hockey guy, are you, um, are you like, yes, I understand this has to change and we and we have to you know understand the market, or are you like, man, it's Canada and we're showing hockey. Let's let's not get cute and just show the people what they want to see. Well, no, I think the way my brain works, anyways, that you're always. Um, thinking there's going to be changes because my industry doesn't stay pat very long. Right. And, uh, and the good thing is when uh, George was around, I had known George for a number of years also. So that seemed seamless for me. Uh, and I know that uh, with, you know, I'm not trying to uh, be mean or anything. It, it just didn't work. I don't, it's none of my business why it didn't work. Uh, I'm just there to uh, do a job that they asked me to do. But uh, Ron is just, you know, brilliant. I, I, you know, that's the easiest way to describe him. He's, uh, he knows that job uh, and he is so darn good. I've worked with so many great, great broadcasters, including George. But I just don't know if I'll ever work with a guy as brilliant as Ron. He is just something else. And, and it's easy to say that when you work on the panel with him because you hear everything going on in our ears and we're trying to concentrate on the show and talking and, and, uh, but he's dealing with all the traffic and, and we hear a lot of it. And uh, so you just, sometimes you look over and you think how in the world can this guy be that good? I, I mean, it's one thing I know a lot of uh, young broadcasters always say, uh, and I did like, I don't know if I'll ever get used to this with people talking in my ear when I'm, talking and trying to sort of get used to that as best you can you can never really i don't think be perfect at it um but you can get okay 
Yeah, well, I mean, obviously you've done a, a great job. And to your point, Ron McLean, I mean, there's there's probably a handful of people in any sport that do what he does and do it as well. So that's yeah. Uh, obviously yeah. a testament. Um, so the, the I guess the thing about being a broadcaster for 25 years was you never really got another opportunity to in, you know fully try some of the other avenues that come up for ex-players. I'm thinking, you know, player development, coaching, GM, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, was that, was there opportunities or was that something that at the end of a contract you ever sat with your agent and said, what else might be out there for me? I didn't sit down with my agent. He had known my uh, uh, desire to be a broadcaster. Um, in fact, my last year playing, I remember the conversation. He and his wife uh, were at their place in uh, New York and uh, we're having dinner and and uh, there were some teams kind of snooping around wondering if I might want to play another year or so and he asked me point blank like do you do you want to play again because you can get a contract and I said no and I told him Lloyd I'll put it as clearly to you as I can Um, the wins aren't as special anymore and the losses don't hurt as much and that was the point uh, Gord that I knew that I needed a career change. Now, having said that about the different opportunities, uh, yes, early on there were opportunities and there were, there were teams that were asking whether I was, uh, what direction I wanted to go in, um, in particular coaching or as a goalie coach. Uh, there were opportunities well into my broadcasting career where I've had teams uh, ask. Now, the last little while, I'd have to say that there hasn't been uh, that discussion. And, uh, you know, I'm at that point, I'm, you know, in my early 60s. I don't know what I might do after this broadcasting career comes to an end, but uh, I'm always open for a conversation. I I think that most ex-players would say it's you're intrigued by the idea of getting into the hockey ops part of it, right? Simply because that's what we've done for a lot of our lives. So. There was always, uh, you know, I was curious about it, but the other thing, and I got lucky, I got really lucky in this, that I've had longevity in broadcasting, but I I was looking around the coaching ranks, and it's easy to see guys like Scotty Bowman and my coach Al Arbor and, you know, a number of the other guys and the longevity. The fact of the matter is most guys don't last very long, and I didn't like that prospect. So, and I didn't, I wasn't big on moving. You know, we live here in Calgary and I like that and I commute every weekend, but it's not like I'd have to go down to the minors for two years in some city and then maybe move to a different minor league market and then maybe be an assistant coach for two or three years and then maybe move again if you get a head coaching opportunity. I had moved enough already in my 17 years playing hockey that I wasn't looking at that. Yeah, and I think there's like, you got to look at the the bulk of it or the like in the bell curve like Steve Eiserman's going to go and he's going to build a couple of teams yes but, but not every ex-superstar turns into an all-star architect of a team right you have to think right. of the other guys that that don't do that and and what yeah. if you're one of those you're dragging your family further and further around instead of being able to enjoy this life that you that you do have in Calgary 100 percent, and that's why when I look back and I I'm very uh content and uh I, I know I've made the right choice, and uh, although it was a big choice, um, you know, you you know, I I heard somebody say early on in my broadcasting career that, boy, if you ever 
approach anywhere near a 10-year career, you should consider yourself really blessed. And as you mentioned at the top, I think I'm in my 24th year full-time, which is shocking, really. Well, I mean, that's they got to have that that person that comes in and delivers the goods every time while they're moving pieces in and out that, you know, the straw that stirs the drink, they got to have the the glass that holds the cup and the, or the ice and everything together, right? So, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> so, you you got this playing career, um this broadcasting career, but that's like I mean, ultimately that's what you do for a living, like who you are is you're an ex hockey player. You're a husband, you're a father, you're a grandfather. Yeah. And one of the things that, um, as you know, as as the world becomes more comfortable with it, there's more people talking about it. And you've really been a, an advocate for mental health and, and the awareness of people who are, who are battling mental health issues, uh, to the point that you've been uh, awarded an honorary degree from Mount Royal university here. And, Mm -hmm in Calgary. So are you, are you able to tell us a little bit about how that became so important to you and and what you're doing in that space? Yeah. For, you know, right off the top. Well, thank you for that. And thanks for having this conversation with me. Um, It's the work I'm most proud of. Um, You know, hockey's great, broadcasting great, but this whole thing about talking about mental health started with us, uh, with our family in 2005, when, Caitlin, uh, she was 12 years old. She's our youngest daughter. And uh, she started experiencing uh, a bunch of things in life and it was making her life very, very difficult. Uh, In the fall of 2005, my wife was taking her to school, uh, first day of school, and she couldn't get out of the car, literally could not get out of the car. She was so afraid. And and as Donna said, when she came home, it only could have seen the sheer look of fear in her eyes. So at that point, we knew we we need to get Caitlin some help. I will backtrack just a little bit, and I'm not guilty about this, and I hope other people that might find themselves in the same situation don't be guilty about it because we didn't know that uh, trouble was lurking. We didn't know what to look for. We didn't know what the signs were. We, of course, recognized that Caitlin was going through some things, but we thought they were all just little individual acts or, as I like to say, quirky little habits. You know, in hindsight, many years later, when we put it all together, yeah, it makes sense. She was really going through a lot, um, but we were good enough to, in 2005, get the help that she needed. Um, And uh, so that was quite the battle for her, still can be. Uh, She was diagnosed with OCD and anxiety. Um, She, her fears are, she wakes up every day fearing uh, disease and dying. Um, It was, uh, she gave us one of the most profound statements ever. Uh, in four years after going to therapy, she came to us, my wife and I, and she said, uh, mom, dad, I'm having more good days than bad. And, you know, what a profound statement for somebody at 16 years old uh, to share with us that uh, the magnitude of that statement. Um, and uh, so she had been doing quite well. And then in the fall of 2012, she thought she was going to move away and go to university in Kelowna at UBCO and uh, it started off okay. And then within a month, it was uh, not good for her and she had to come home. As you can expect, Gord, she was embarrassed and all these things. And so she had to go see her uh, doctor again. Um, uh, Quite surprising to me, Gord, she got through that rather quickly. I I didn't expect it to be uh, as quickly um, as it happened to be. 
and and there's a publicist that we were using in Toronto, and he knew of Caitlin and our story and so on. And he came to me one day and said, you know, would you guys ever be willing to share your story publicly? And I thought first, my first thought was, Gord, well, it might be too soon. This is yeah. spring of 2013. Caitlin had a tough time, what, only six or seven months before. And I'm thinking, hmm, boy, you know, I don't want to trigger anything. Um, it might be uh, too emotional for her, but she agreed to it. And uh, and then so Joe O'Connor at the National Post and Lauren LaRose with the Canadian Press wrote two beautiful articles, captured her spirit uh, wonderfully. And but just the night before the, the stories were going to go to print, I was in St. Louis for a playoff game and I called Kate. And I was actually quite uh, concerned or nervous. And I said, um, you know, social media is just starting to take hold. Uh, it wasn't quite as big as it, it is now, of course, but I was still concerned about the haters or the bashers or, you know, and so I expressed that to her. She said, no, no, I'm okay. And much to our surprise and much to our delight, it's all been nothing but heartwarming. People just send our, or send their love and support and so on. And so it's been really building from that point on. And, you know, so much so look at us two grown men talking about this conversation, which Gord, I don't think would have happened seven years ago. Um, certainly not 10 years ago. Uh, now it is a conversation we're having. And then so with Caitlin's strength, it gave me the strength to share on social media what I've been going through since the uh, summer 2019, just before the pandemic. Um, the pandemic certainly didn't make my case any easier, but uh, my thoughts were uh, and still can be start out as rational and then they turn irrational. And th what Caitlin taught us about mental health is the loop and it just goes round and round and round unless you have the tools to break that loop. Uh, in the case of a lot of people, it just gets louder and louder and doesn't stop. And so <clears throat> because of that, um, I've shared on social media, my I've been seeing somebody. I haven't seen this person just for a little bit because I'm doing quite well. And I want to just see if I can sort of do it on my own with the stress of the start of the hockey season. But I know I'll be going back soon. But I went for weeks, uh, uh, for months and months. I had to go, you know, every Friday during the pandemic. And and for a while, I was going for months. And it really, really helped me so much so that we would go sit there and uh, I'd be in the office for half an hour. We didn't even talk about me my mental health. I just needed that. I like that place to go sit. I found it uh, comfortable to be there and safe. <clears throat> so then I started journaling, uh, just all these different things that have really helped me with my mental health and sharing on social media has been amazing to me because I've sort of, I found this little community that we share and people uh, kind, it's just awesome. And I think that you mentioned the fact that these conversations weren't commonplace, you know, a, a very short number of years ago. And I, um, I watched your appearance on Brady's um, podcast yeah. a couple of weeks yeah. ago. I've had Brady on and, yeah. and the things that he's doing, he's getting like these humongous, like AHL legendary scrappers yeah. Yeah. to come on and say like, man, I was I was swinging for everything I was worth, and it was the only thing that was keeping me from doing something um, permanent, right? And and yeah. I think to myself that we have these avenues and these opportunities, and uh, the fact that we're willing to take them and talk about these things, hopefully, 
the next generation. It doesn't have to be so remarkable that two grown men can sit and have a conversation about it. I totally agree. And that's why, you know, it's a hard topic, but it's, it's what really uh, <clears throat> fills me with excitement to know or to maybe dream about what's going to, what's this going to look like in two years or five years or in particular 10 years, because we're having these conversations on a regular basis now, and it's just going to be so common that uh, um, it's going to really benefit everybody that we can just be so open. Uh, I know the workplaces, a lot of places where people uh, go every day, um, those are getting better and safer for people and they feel that they're supported. I know uh, for me, I was really supported. I still am. Uh, all my uh, bosses know. Uh, in fact, I posted during the pandemic, uh, my wife and I went for a walk and I wasn't doing very well. And my boss, one of my bosses saw it and he called me immediately and said, oh my gosh, sorry, Kelly, do you need time off? And, you know, that would be great for a lot of people, right? And my immediate thought was yes, but I knew that no, I can't do that <laughs> because my brain would win, right? But yeah. Brain was trying to ruin me would win so I needed to continue to go into work and 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 uh, uh, get a win that way and also prove to myself that that part of the brain isn't going to take over. So can you tell us a little bit about the the more good days I believe um, you know talking with Brady uh, yeah. you were talking about how some of that uh, advocacy and, and what you guys are doing with that brand you know, you, you're able to meet people, talk to people, and, and that probably, you know, there's no winning in that. No one's further ahead. You're just in a different spot in that journey. What's it like to, through that avenue, to meet all these people? It, oh, it's phenomenal. And so this was not uh, my company. It's not my wife's company, Donna. This is uh, uh, Caitlin and her husband, Hayden. And they come up, came up with this idea, and I'm wearing one of their shirts. Um, this is their dog, Nuvi. Hayden, by uh, trade, is an artist, so all the artwork is theirs. And they have, again, it goes from that uh, line that Caitlin gave us uh, back in, uh, what, 2009. Uh, Mom, Dad, I'm having more good days than bad, so they just shortened it to more good days. And the, the thing why I think it uh, connects people is because we can all agree with that. We're all looking for more good days. And so they started that clothing company called moregooddaysclothing.com and uh, they have all sorts of different things they have hoodies they have t-shirts they have hats they have uh, toques they have all sorts of things and uh, <clears throat> I like to wear it everywhere I go um, especially on planes because it's so comfortable uh, on yeah. Friday Sundays when I'm flying either to Toronto or home and it starts a conversation uh, in fact the last uh, flight I was on the flight attendant wanted to know more about uh, more good days. So I told her Caitlin's uh, story and Hayden's story. And uh, as an example, they were at an outdoor market here in Calgary uh, uh, um, in September, I want to say. And I shared that, that I'd be there with them on uh, social media. I went there and a, a few months ago, Gord, I had posted a thing on social media about after seeing uh, the person helping with my mental health, I'm carrying now in my wallet a laminated index card with a number of little sort of uh, points, reminders that to help me when I'm having a tough day. And I shared that on social media. And so we go 
uh, to the event and a guy, total stranger, comes up to me and opens his wallet and shows me his index card, reads out loud what his uh, things are. It was very cool, very uh, nice bonding moment between two males, uh, never met. We hugged each other and we both felt really great. So, you know, that's what this company does, brings us all together. It's all uh, based on love and support and mental health. And it's really cool. I'm so proud of them. It's interesting, Kelly. Uh, we're audio only. Um, with a face like this, I uh, I, I don't <laughs> don't flash it. But uh, man, if people could see, you just described, you know, a, a, a almost 700 game NHL career. You described a 25 year career in broadcasting uh, on Canada's premier hockey, ch- and not, you lit up more talking about <laughs> your daughter's uh, endeavor than you did about the other stuff. So I think that that's a testament to just how important you find that and how you, how you, important you feel it is. Oh, 100%. I'm glad we had this conversation about it, Gordon. And it, this conversation is growing. Like I, as I mentioned a number of times, I live in Calgary and a lot of big major corporations uh, uh, are asking either Kate or myself or both of us to come in and speak about mental health. And we share our, our, uh, our stories and uh it's just been so good and uh kate and hayden have done something really wonderful with that clothing brand because i don't know i can't speak for all the people who have bought the clothes but i feel good wearing it and it's a great conversation starter you know i go into my local uh, coffee shop in the morning and get my coffee and i've lost count how many people go hey i like that that uh, yeah more good days and i also sort of put two things together so there's more good days and also ron mclean and i were having a chat many years ago uh, about mental health and uh, as he usually does he left me with something brilliant and uh, his last text to me was inner peace what a quest and i think of both of those uh, slogans uh, often right like we're all looking for more good days and inner peace what a quest and uh, it's been quite the journey yeah and uh, because it's ron mclean you can hear that voice in your head Yes. reading that text to you right so not only are you uh uh an ex uh professional athlete and a and a current professional broadcaster and the father of an of an amazing daughter who's uh who's doing some some incredible things you're also a published author mm. you've uh, written a book and and that was a little bit more back facing uh on brady's pod you did mention that you you haven't uh, officially ruled out a second book what would that look like Yep. So that the, the, I think Brady may have sort of sparked that interest in me because now I am starting to think about it on uh, not a regular basis, but a little bit more often. And I'm sort of kind of thinking about what that second book may look like. And I, I do think I it would be more about my career in broadcasting. And but a large part of it would be about mental health and uh, getting that story out there and uh, really sharing with people uh, how it's affected our family, uh, both uh, positively and negatively, and how um, you can get through it. I, I mean, it's uh, it's not easy, and some days uh, are more difficult. But uh, I found, uh, in my case, that uh, I can do it, and I'm pretty darn proud of myself. Well, and you should be. That's I mean, the the stories are incredible, and and the thing that I uh, I, I think the in the American news media, they call it like the quarterback curse or whatever, where the, the quarterback has the beautiful wife and then he has a, 
a child with special needs or something happens and and they have no ability to cope with it because everything in their life is gone according to the plan and hmm. and you know you've had this incredible career and then when something uh, came along whether it was Caitlin's mental health or yours mm -hmm. um, you had the tools to figure out how you were going to let you were going to manage this and not let this run your life and if you could you know give people an opportunity to understand how you did it lord knows how many people you could help with something like that yeah um i kind of hesitate because uh, you're exactly right but what i did the mistake i made gord uh knowing what caitlin went through that i should have gone to get the help i needed sooner i i knew what i was experiencing and i knew what i was going through and i shared it with my family but for some reason I, i'm still not quite sure i waited uh, about a year until i went to get the help that i needed and i shouldn't have done that because that was too too long to do it try and do it on my own because the first time i went to get the help was just a game changer for me and so that would be my only advice the only other advice i'd give Gord, uh in concerning this topic it's not for everybody to share and if you don't feel uh, like you want to share it with the world you don't have to but the only thing I would uh, stress is get the help that you need and uh, then you'll be better off for that. Uh, that was actually the last point I had written down on here was you, you did mention that on Brady's pod about hmm. um, it, it's not for everybody. No, it's it's not their cup of tea. And I think that's important, too, because as the as the conversations become more regular and there are outlets for it, it is important to note that some people um, can go get the help they need and and get themselves sorted out and get themselves on the right track. And it doesn't need to be something that they have to share uh, in order for it to be the honorable thing to do. It's it's for yeah. them to be right. Yeah, we have a person that we love dearly in our life and uh, they, they have gotten the help they need and they share a ton with us, but they don't share it publicly. Mm -hmm. And that is perfectly fine, right? There's like, like I was saying, there is no requirement to share it with everybody. And, for whatever reason, you know, I, I think sometimes for some people, if they were to share, it might trigger more uh, <clears throat> things that they'd have to sort of accept or deal with. And and we don't want that. No, the healthy person. That's what we're after out of yeah, all this. I agree. Beautiful. I like that. Well said. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, so I, I want to be cognizant of your time. And, uh, and we've had a, a great conversation to this point. But I always like to, at the end of the, of the pod, ask um the guest what does success look like now for them and does it look anything like you might have thought it would as you were progressing through this second part of your life yeah success is kind of hard to define because what does it really mean and you know does it mean because you're on a popular tv show that that's success or maybe a couple bucks in your pocket. Does that mean you're successful? I don't know. I, I'm not trying to be too philosophical, but I think that um, happy is great. We've got uh, three daughters, three son-in-laws, two grandchildren, hoping all that's going to uh, stay, remain the same where everybody's doing really well and happy and healthy. And um, so I think that maybe in age, you become a little bit more reflective and you look back and you're more grateful about uh, your life and you know how you how you view it i don't really you know the term successful i don't know how to put that into context how it you know how it really defines me or i think about myself or my family i i think the way i grew up in edmonton with my beautiful mom and dad and a brother 
and going on camping trips. That was, uh, you know, my mom and dad were highly successful in that sense. And so it's it's however you want to view it. And uh, the other thing is, in, if you're trying to think of it in that constructive way, uh, be kind to yourself. And so if maybe you didn't achieve a goal that you're reaching for, just be kind to yourself because uh, we're pretty good at beating ourselves up, aren't we? Yeah, that's for sure. We we can always find the fault in the things that we do. Right. <laughs> so sit back, enjoy, and uh, and relax. What a super, super fun podcast for me. As you could tell probably by the beginning when I was fanboying out that talking to Kelly is something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. We had originally you know, touch base with each other almost a year ago. Um, but he was in the middle of his hockey season and things were, were busy and it wasn't, wasn't going to work out. And, uh, I waited, I set an alarm in my uh, calendar till, you know, September of this year and I was back from the lake and I knew we'd be back uh, in high gear and I reached out and he couldn't have been more gracious. He, he was like, yeah, I've got some stuff happening. Um, but I'll, I'll let you know he did. And it was great uh, to sit down and go through things with Kelly. I mean, a guy with 270 wins in the NHL as a goalie and then 25 years as a broadcaster and then the More Better Days initiative that uh, Caitlin's doing, you know, with Hayden and, and Kelly's an ambassador for. This is exactly the type of story that we want to talk about in in the Second Act podcast. It was so much fun to sit down with him, um, you know, and you see him on TV and he's talking all the time and then all of a sudden you're looking at him through the same lens through a through a screen and he's answering your questions and you're having a conversation with a a legend like kelly rudy and it's just unbelievable to think that this is as far as we've come with the second hour podcast that we're getting people like kelly rudy natasha stanishevsky people with you know incredible profiles taking on um, an hour of their time to come and sit with us and talk about what's going on in their life. And we, we just couldn't be more grateful. It's so much fun. And uh, we just want to keep, keep bringing you these stories. You know, we're so thankful for the opportunity to sit down and talk to these people and uh, we have a lot of fun. And I think that's the main, the main thing, as long as this is fun, uh, we'll keep doing it. And, uh, and we're still having a lot of fun. So it's like, we always say there are no wrong answers and no test at the end. So make the most out of every day. The Second Act Podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music. Happy Rock. That is www.bensound.com. We'd also like to thank Chin Whiskers for the promotional consideration. You can find them at your local Tommy Guns, Original Barbershop, Amazon, or chinwhiskers.ca. And we would also like to thank you for listening. Test the microphone. No mmm noise. You're an asshole.